Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 82, Taringa Whakarongo. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Madison. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we talked about games that were pretty much exclusively for young kids. Although today's topic was also somewhat for rangatahi, we'll be focusing more on the adults. When we went over the games that were a bit more physical in nature, you may have noticed that we didn't cover probably the most famous physical activity that Māori performed. This was partially because I wanted to save it until last, but also to give it its own proper focus that it really deserves. So, today, and for the next few episodes, we will talk about probably the most famous physical activity in all of Te Ao Māori. The haka. Before we dive into what haka is and what it means, we need to light a metaphorical match and clear the air of a couple of misconceptions. Firstly, when I say the haka, you're probably thinking of kamate, the haka that the New Zealand national rugby team, the All Blacks, have performed since 1905, but actually dates back to Te Rauparaha, a Ngāti Toa chief, who composed it circa 1820. Alternatively, you're possibly thinking of kapa o pango, another haka that the All Blacks have performed since 2005. Haka in New Zealand rugby actually goes much further back than this, probably starting around the mid to late 1880s, and really deserves an episode of its own. But what I want to illustrate here is something you may have already picked up on. There is no THE haka. There is no single monolithic haka that is always performed when a haka is needed. There are many different types of haka and many different ways that they are performed and used, all with different actions, words, and cadence. As you might expect, different iwi or hapu have haka that they call their own, and haka are still even being written today. For example, kapa opango that I mentioned before, which was specially written for the use of the All Blacks, or my own high school's haka, which was written for the use of the students on special occasions. The second misconception we need to clear up is that most people know haka as something that was done in times of war, a display of martial prowess to intimidate your enemies. Most early European writers, and even some modern ones, often translate haka or describe it as a quote-unquote war dance, which is probably what has led to this heavy association with battle, aggression, and warfare. While, yes, this is an aspect of haka and what it was used for, it really overshadows the other aspects of it that weren't explicitly martial. We have discussed these a little in the past when talking about pre-European Māori social structure and how during pōwhiri, haka were used to welcome guests. Haka had a high level of social importance beyond that of war, and a tribe's mana could grow or diminish based on how well they performed their haka. Both of these misconceptions will become a bit clearer as we talk about haka more, but I just wanted to get that out there so we're all on the same page as we go forward. So let's actually go over what haka is at a surface level. 
you know, like, if I told you that we were going to see a group perform Kapahaka, what would you expect to see? As I suspect a few of you may not know what I'm talking about. A haka, more or less, involves a group of people, usually men and women, but not always, chanting together, often loudly, or sometimes doing a bit of a call and response type thing from a leader to the rest of the group. Sort of like a sea shanty, but not really. Although, it could just be a single person as well. The formation that the group would normally be in is a hollow square or a wedge, though today evenly spaced lines are more popular. The stance of the haka is that of, quote, relaxed readiness, end quote, whereby the knees are lightly bent with the feet apart, hands on the hips, and back straight. The key being that they should be able to have their hands on their hips without bending at the waist. Usually, a haka will start with the leader shouting, Taringa Fakarongo, meaning listen up, followed by karite and or kia mau, basically meaning be ready. After that, there will be a ringa pakia, instructing the group to slap their hands against their thighs. Sometimes the group will begin to stamp their feet now, but will most often await instructions from the leader. Once the tempo has been set, the leader will give his opening call and the haka will begin. Most often, haka are accompanied by actions, such as the slapping of thighs, which you see in kamate, the shaking of hands, jumping, pointing, and that sort of thing, usually done in time to a beat, which is kept by the stomping of the feet. Haka actually has a large rhythm component. It requires everyone to be in time so that it all looks good, much like modern dancing choreography. Historically, this skill translated fairly well into other areas, Best himself noting that military drills and parading were something that the Māori contingent of World War I excelled at. He also mentions how when Europeans first arrived in Aotearoa, that Māori were quite critical of their rowing skills, since Māori also had a heavy rhythm component as part of their rowing, whereas I guess they thought Europeans didn't. There are also often quite vivid facial expressions, the most famous of these being the widening of the eyes and the protruding of the tongue. I know I've been a bit vague here and put in quite a lot of caveats, but that's really because there are lots of different haka that all have their own way of being performed and there really isn't a single straight answer to any of this. Calling it a dance, or a posture dance, or a war dance, doesn't exactly tell you what you might be in for if you were told you were going to see a haka being performed. To be totally honest, I am actually at a bit of a loss to describe what a haka is, so I'm kinda relying on the fact that you have either seen the All Blacks perform, or have some other prior encounter with one. As a matter of fact, Armstrong doesn't believe you can learn haka by reading about it. Expression, inflections, etc. just can't be conveyed fully through words or diagrams. You have to see it and feel it. Alan Armstrong, a prolific writer on Māori games, songs and dances, does quite a good job of explaining what haka is in a more conceptual way, saying it is a, quote, composition played by many instruments. 
Hands, feet, legs, body, voice, tongue, and eyes all play their part in blending together to convey in their fullness the challenge, welcome, exultion, defiance, or contempt of the words. It is disciplined, yet emotional. More than any other aspect of Māori culture, this complex dance is an expression of the passion, vigour, and identity of the race. It is, at its best, truly a message of the soul expressed by words and posture. End quote. That, from my pretty academic understanding, is a good description of the emotional importance of what haka is. It is a very powerful expression of a group's feelings, whether those feelings be positive or negative. I think it also quite nicely implies about how seeing a haka on television or similar doesn't quite convey how powerful it is in person. Seeing a haka in person or having it performed at you is much more powerful and you feel it a lot more than if you just saw it on the telly. Haka could be very short, from less than a minute to a few minutes long, depending on the occasion and the message trying to be conveyed. One example that came from a source I read was a very short haka about this person's great-grandfather that was performed during a porphyry on a marae. The haka was all about how his great-grandfather would pull on his penis, and how his hand would tire from doing so until his penis shriveled. Which is, uh, yeah, quite graphic. Particularly when you take into account that this was in a fairly public and quite formal setting. The author was later informed though, by none other than Hiranimid himself, that this is likely from when his great-grandfather left his wife and remarried someone else. The author was rather surprised that such a short haka with a pretty niche contextual use had managed to survive to the modern day, which really goes to show how a lot of very small things can be held by tohunga to be whipped out when the appropriate time called for it. In this case, despite the rather interesting content and probable negative context of the haka, the author took it as a sign of respect. He was a descendant of the person that the haka was about, so the use of that particular haka showed that his great-grandfather was a significant person in that iwi's past, and that the memory of him had been held on to. So it was appropriate to acknowledge his descendant in that way. Haka words and themes can have a range of topics, such as welcoming and farewelling people, expressing a grievance, or making your desires known to the gods. They can also be more intimate subjects, like that of expressing your love, or your excitement at escaping capture. Like most concepts in Te Ao Māori, haka has a legendary origin, possibly in a place that you wouldn't expect. It actually comes from Tamanui Tara, the sun, or more accurately, the sun's son. Tamanui Tara has two wives, Hine Raumati, who is the embodiment of summer, and Hine Takarua, who is the embodiment of winter. The particular child that we're interested in is the one from Hine Raumati, the summer. Her son was called Tane Rori, who is the shimmering light dancing on hot days. 
This dancing is performed in honour of his mother, and it is also said to be the influence for the trembling movements of the hands during a haka. In terms of the different types of haka, there are quite a few, but the lines between each are blurred, and it also kind of depends on who you ask as to how you categorise them. Adding another layer of complexity is the fact that haka is very much different now to what it was in the pre-European era, given there have been many other influences upon it, and its interaction with other cultures has changed its form and the needs or the use of the haka, which ultimately has led to a reduction in types. Armstrong defines haka between whether they are performed with or without weapons, which seems to be a fairly widespread categorization. From those two broad definitions, Armstrong further narrows down haka into a couple of subcategories, haka taparahi and haka peruperu. The former are those not explicitly used in warfare, so anything used on the marae to greet guests or to honour someone, that sort of thing. Kamate would also be put into this category, since it is used by the All Blacks or Ngāti Toa for non-martial reasons. The latter, the Hakapiruperu, are what you might call the quote-unquote true war dancers, in that they were used to prepare for battle or to celebrate victories. This classification isn't all that there is though. As I said, it depends on who you ask. Armstrong's system has been called by some quote-unquote tidy, as it fits everything in just a little bit too neatly, and it doesn't account for other variances. This is somewhat to be expected though, since Armstrong is Pākehā, and us Pākehā really do have a bad habit of putting fluid concepts into nice neat boxes when they probably shouldn't be. Instead, it was put forward that haka should be defined and categorised by the following different factors. The haka's function, how the haka was performed, how the performers were grouped, and one that was for haka specifically for funerals. From these broader groups, there were a few more specific groupings. Such as under haka by function, there was a group for haka that contained sexual connotations or imagery, and are meant to show derision. Or another for haka that are meant to indicate revenge. For haka based on grouping, it could be based on having two ranks of performers, or performing in a square. For the manner of performing, it could be to do with the shuffling of the feet, or kneeling. And the funeral haka seemed to be grouped by what part of the funeral they were performed at, or in what context, such as to welcome the manuhiri, or to honour those who died in battle. Others define it more along the lines of whether the haka was meant to be received positively or negatively, whether the movements were uniform in their actions, or whether the particular haka was meant for amusement, welcoming manuhiri, war, or other purposes. In general, there isn't really a good way to categorise haka, it's all just a bit too fluid, which is also what makes it so interesting. Let's go back to haka peruperu though, because from what I found, there is a fair amount more info on them as opposed to haka taparahi, 
Probably because to the Europeans who were writing this stuff down, the war dances were the ones that really caught their eye more, especially with the addition of weapons being used. Peru is the Te Reo Māori word for being angry, or more specifically, the look that someone has when they're angry. So doubling it up and saying Peru Peru is a more intense version of the word, the repetition indicating more than one of, or lots of something. In this case, probably a lot more aggression. This naturally leads to the naming of Hakapiruperu as they are kinda intended to be anger distilled into a raw, powerful form that is projected by voice and body. As mentioned, Hakapiruperu were generally performed with weapons. Things like patu, midi, taiaha, tefatifa, and later muskets were also used when those were brought to Aotearoa. Interestingly, this type of haka wasn't just used to intimidate the enemy or to celebrate a victory. It had a variety of uses, it's just they all centred on war and battle. Armstrong describes haka being used prior to a towa leaving for battle. They would assemble somewhere in the kaina or pa and perform a haka for the rangatira and tohunga. This had both a practical and spiritual purpose. The practical was that the rangatira could inspect their troops and ensure they were ready for battle. Haka is quite a physical activity, so it would become pretty clear if someone was struggling due to an injury, or wasn't able to wield their weapon correctly, making them a liability on the battlefield. The tohunga were concerned with the spiritual aspect, and in particular they would be looking at the troops' feet, making sure that everyone was jumping in the air at the same time, and that their legs were high enough. If they didn't, this would be considered a bad tohu that they weren't going to be victorious. Tuta Nihoniho, a Ngāti chief, also makes comment that men should show their legs to the women before they leave for battle, and perform a haka for them, as they will point out if they're doing everything right and look ready with the women's appropriate response being, quote, advancing with warlike faces, end quote, if they approved. However, if they don't do this, they are likely apprehensive because they don't look ready. To me, this sounds like they were using this as a way to further assess the fighting skills of the troops, as the women had as much of a stake in this as anyone else, it was possible they were going to lose their husbands, brothers, and sons, as well as anything the women personally had to go through if the men were defeated. So they wouldn't want Atoa to leave if they felt the blokes weren't ready. Again, all of this was steeped in the spiritual, but it had a very clear practical purpose. Assessing the towa to make sure everyone was fit enough, had correct discipline, posture, etc. that would benefit them on the battlefield. War is risky, and you wanted to make sure you gave yourself the best possible chance to win. Some weak links in the chain could be fatal, especially when we're talking about a few hundred men aside. If when watching the haka, the tohunga thought the omens were bad, they would ask the towa to repeat the haka to double check. If the performance was good second time round, then the first was considered a bit of a dud, and the towa proceeded to war. If it was bad twice in a row, then that indicated that 
this was not their day and they shouldn't fight. But I'm sure some did, as we have seen in other cases across the world with similar practices. Alternatively, if it was just one or two guys that were out of time, they could just be left behind as the rest of the Toa went off to battle, or even just killed on the spot. Hakaperuperu weren't just used for inspection and tohu, but could also be used to intimidate an enemy group, usually with both groups performing their haka to each other. Although Best calls this quote-unquote mock combat, this potentially wasn't quite what they were doing. As you might expect, Europeans didn't have much of positive note to say about the haka. Quote, It consists of a variety of violent motions and hideous contortions of the limbs. Their eyes appear to be starting from their head, their tongue hanging down to their chin, and the motion of their body entirely corresponding with these in a manner not to be described. End quote. Another European talked about when a group was performing a haka on the deck of a ship. Quote, they danced so heavily that we were afraid they would break through the deck. End quote. Others, possibly unsurprisingly, were terrified of haka. Quote, the whole performance was so perfectly horrid that, although I am possessed of strong nerves, I could not repress a shudder, and my hair almost stood on end. End quote. In particular, this was in reference to a haka that was performed by 3,000 people, so it certainly would have been quite intimidating. Best observed that the haka pirupiru were performed on three occasions. The first was when Manuhiri arrived to a pa, as their intention was unknown to the receiving group, and this showed the visitors that the tangata whenua were ready for battle should it come to that. To me, it sounds like Best is describing a porphyry and how tangata whenua would perform a haka as well as a wero to gauge the Manuhiri's intentions. The second occasion was that we have already talked about, before going to war to check if the gods approved of the reason for the conflict, as well as practical preparedness. The other occasion was when the battle was won and the enemy was fleeing, letting them hear the victors revel in their triumph over them. Next time, we will continue talking about the social importance of haka, what Europeans thought when they first encountered it, and the women's role in it all. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>